Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Pastor Mark. Appreciate the opportunity to preach twice, although I did joke with him. I said, you know what? When he preaches, the Bears win. That's all I'll say. Uh, you may be seated. Well, you know, uh, one day a uh, religious teacher uh, asked the Lord Jesus, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And you always be careful what you ask because Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 to 40. Well, you know, each year, many of us will go through a physical checkup, you know, your, your annual exams at your doctor, and if you're like me, if you're an employee or a manager in the workplace, you do performance reviews at your workplaces. Perhaps you may do a financial checkup at year's end or at tax time. But how often do we take time? How often do we take time each year to review our spiritual life? Think about that. Those who are saved by grace are called to grow in grace. 2 Peter 3.18 As disciples of Jesus, we are to live a life of love. Love for God, love for neighbor. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to do those things. Well, too often, in the busyness of our day-to-day -day lives, and boy, uh, we are busy, even in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, Pastor Mark didn't mention it. We had one of our busiest ministry years, right, Pastor Mark? One of the busiest ministry years that we can recall around here. So we let a lot of priorities crowd out the two highest priorities that Jesus gave us in Matthew 22. I would encourage all of us to examine your spiritual life over the past year and prayerfully seek God's help in the areas where you sense he desires you to grow in the new year. The topic of this message is new beginnings to a new year. Uh, in the C.S. Lewis uh, discipleship program, uh, in this second year we were asked to reflect on what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the last 30 days. We've been asked to, encouraged and challenged to think back over our entire life and list the good things that God has done for us. Ponder the grace and love which God has poured out on you in each instance where he has blessed you and given good things to you in your life and give thanks to him and praise to him, then ponder the proper response you should make to God for his goodness that he has poured out in your life. Ask God to give you a wholehearted love for Jesus and a desire to be more like him and to do whatever is necessary to bring this to fruition in 2021. So let me pray this prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians as we begin 2021. We pray for you. Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
Lord, I pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, each one of us, that we may know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe according to the working of your great might. Now open your word to your children. We receive it as morsels that fall off a table. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and you'd help us not only to listen, but to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to tell you a couple of conversion stories when I talk about new beginnings, new beginnings synonymous with the new birth. Okay? And as we approach uh, another Black History Month and uh, next month, if you don't mind, I'd like to get, get it kick-started today, okay? Uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. There's a method to this madness, so hang with me. The autobiography of Malcolm X is the story of Malcolm Little, a man who changed the trajectory of the civil rights struggle in the 1950s. Shortly after he was killed in 1965 by other black Muslims, his story appeared on the scene and became standard reading for an entire generation. That was standard reading in the schools. It was also a movie directed by Spike Lee. Malcolm Little's conversion to Malcolm X took place when he was in prison. He wrote about his deep conviction of sin until he finally bowed the knee to ask forgiveness of God. Quote, You know what my life had been, God. Picking up a lock to rob someone's house was the only way my knees had ever been bent before. I had to force myself to bend my knees, and waves of shame and disappointment and embarrassment forced me back up for evil to bend its knees. Admitting its guilt to implore the forgiveness of God is the hardest thing in the world, said Malcolm Little. But Malcolm Little finally submitted, and at that point his life took on a whole new purpose. He wrote in his autobiography, I still marvel at how swiftly my previous life's thinking pattern slid away from me, like snow sliding off the roof. I would be startled to catch myself thinking in a remote way of my earlier self as another person. Well, the chapter in the book in which he describes his conversion, you know what the title of that chapter was? Saved. Saved. But while it is a wonderful conversion testimony, it was a conversion to Islam and not to Jesus Christ or Christianity. Malcolm X would go on to become the leader of the nation of Islam, and the rest is history. If you're like me, most of us have always assumed that such conversion experience are reserved for Christian conversions, right? You would be wrong. I saw the biography of Mahatma Gandhi, 
a week and a half ago. And it was amazing. Every time that Mahatma Gandhi went on one of his four-day fasts, he would go on four-day fasts at a time. Put us to shame. Hundreds and thousands would convert to his brand of uh, Hinduism or his brand of, of nonviolence protest. He, he would fast to bring together the Muslims and the Hindus in India. And he did. Four-day fast. And, and, and men, women, and children who would be at each other's throats day before, they would come in repentance and reconciliation as, as Mahatma Gandhi would go through these fasts. So every time I hear the word conversion or born again, I take a pause. I pause. Because religious encounters, including conversion experiences, is something that is deeply a part of our humanity. Even during the pandemic, we're seeing great human interest and spirituality and spiritual experiences all over. I mean, people are, are hungry for, for divine meaning and purpose right now in our world. We must have some means of discerning what is genuine spirituality rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit and leading to faith in Christ and what is false or merely human spirituality, like Dianetics and Christian science monitor. We have this means of telling the difference in the Scriptures. The Bible is our divinely given textbook for understanding how God works in the souls of those that He calls and He draws to Himself. It must be the scriptures that inform and interpret our experience rather than our experience that shapes our reading of scriptures. The assumption that the Bible is divinely inspired and authoritative was fundamental to the teaching of Jesus as well as to the other New Testament writers. Through the years, this has been the church's objective foundation for all teaching. Before we become students of human spiritual experience, we need to be students of the Bible. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, I think we have those verses on the screen. The Apostle Paul says, all scripture, not some, not part, all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is in that spirit, it is in that spirit, that I invite you to consider carefully Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 as we explore the idea of a spiritual new beginning and our roles as spiritual midwives in the new birth experience. This is going to turn your understanding of John 3 on completely on its head. And I have to thank uh, the author of uh, the book Beginnings, uh, Stephen Smallman, for the, the concepts and the ideas uh, in this conversation. A lot of folks would like to relegate Jesus Christ to being 
merely a historical figure, as we'll see in this episode. He was anything but a historical figure. He was more than a man. He was the incarnate Son of God, fully God, fully man. The theme of John's gospel is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of the living God, and by believing in Jesus, people can have eternal life. So let's start the first eight verses of John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you do, that you do, unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The concept of the new birth or new beginnings is basic to the Apostle John's writings, as it has already been mentioned in the introduction to his gospel. This is not in the, in the verse list, but in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, I'll read it for you. John says, Yet to all who received Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. That is in his introduction to John's gospel. And again, that is the theme, the core of his letters. And uh, later on, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those letters. The passage in, in John chapter 3 comes to us as a conversation between Jesus and this prominent J uh, Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. The text says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now you compare this to uh, John chapter 4, where in the brightest noonday, the Samaritan meets him at the well. In John chapter 3, it was Nicodemus in the darkest of night. This was either to avoid the stigma of being seen with Jesus, or more likely, uh, he would have had an opportunity for an extended conversation. That's The latter is probably the case. He wanted a, a longer conversation with Jesus. Keep in mind that the setting of this conversation is during the ministry of John the Baptist, who announced the coming kingdom of God and insisted on baptism as a sign of repentance in order to prepare for the coming Messiah. Any mention of the kingdom got the attention of Jewish people because this was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to come to earth and restore his shalom, his peace to a broken and chaotic world. Well, for reasons we're not told, Nicodemus felt drawn to Jesus rather than rejecting him as so many of his fellow Pharisees were doing. 
He believed Jesus had something to teach him about the kingdom. But what he heard was not what he expected. When he, to- when he was told he, was, he must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus immediately thought of the, the physical birth. That's in ver- verse 4. This was obviously what Jesus intended. As the master teacher, he started with the known, the known, the physical birth, then moved to the unknown, the spiritual birth. So it is true to Jesus' attention to use the physical birth to understand spiritual birth. Now give careful attention to the explanation that Jesus gave to Nicodemus in the next three verses. Okay, verses 5 to 8. In verse 5, Jesus repeated the words, I tell you the truth. When you hear that, that, that's put there for emphasis. And it's again mentioned entering or seeing the kingdom of God. There's probably no difference between the two ideas of entering or seeing the kingdom of God. But Jesus wanted to make it clear that this was a matter of utmost importance. We need to give particular attention to the Greek words used for born. It's used eight times. Eight times in this singular passage. The the Greek word for born, and it's used again in verses 3 to 7. 3 and 7. The word translated born is from the Greek verb geneo, geneo, which means to generate or to give life to a new generation. Thus the term regeneration. That's where we get it. It's used in the older language of Abraham that who begat a, as Isaac. Isaac began Jacob. You can read all those begats in uh, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. That's the, the Greek word ganeo. The idea is closer to that of the conception of a child rather than actually giving birth, although both ideas are included. In this passage, every time the verb appears, it is in the passive voice. That means we're not the ones who do the birthing, folks. We're not the ones who do uh, the beginning. It is what happens to us because of the action of another. Okay? The second word, again, is the Greek word anathen, which can also be translated from above. Putting together these two key words can have several possible translations. You could have born again, you could have born from above, you can have begotten again, or you can have begotten from above. The last possibility may be the most precise translation, begotten from above. In any case, Jesus was not describing what we must do to be born again, or regenerated, but what must happen to us. This is very consistent with the other words in the same passage. In verse 5, the word spirit is capitalized in most biblical translations, even though there's no capitalization in the Greek text, because it's clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit as the one who causes the new birth. The new birth, therefore, is not an inward reformation. It is not reincarnation, as Shirley MacLaine would like to think. It's an activity of the Holy Spirit. In some respects, the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus 
when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit, in Matthew 1.20, was a picture of this work of the Spirit. Spiritual life is supernaturally begun in us from above. We don't make anything happen. Water is mentioned in connection with rebirth in verse 5. Very important part here. Water. In verse 5, and the Apostle Paul makes the same connection in Titus 3, 5 when he says, you know, we're saved not by righteous things that we had done, but by his mercy he saved us. He saved us by water, by rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit. St. Augustine's doctrine of salvation connected rebirth to the administration of the water baptism, and this is still assumed in many parts of the church. But here's why we don't believe that infant baptism is a biblical concept. And I say this with the deepest, deepest love and respect and reverence for my liturgical friends and family members. I say this with the deepest reverence. Actually, I'm not even going to say it. I'm going to quote from Dr. Richard Loveless who is a uh, former uh, church history professor of Gordon-Conwell Seminary and the author of Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Dr. Richard Loveless says this. He argues that the objection of baptized infants are always regenerated but simply fall away from this grace subsequently, which could explain those congregations which are full of baptized spiritual darkness. Spiritual deadness, he terms it, which does violence to the power and finality of the biblical image of the second birth, which does not suggest the possibility of being born again and again and again and again. That's just not biblical. To me, yeah, infant baptism is just a, theologically, it's just a bridge, you know, too, too far. I'm going to manage to get myself kicked off this pulpit here, Pastor Mark, so I better move on. We believe, we believe that water baptism is an outward symbol of the inward reality of authentic regeneration and repentant faith in Jesus Christ. It is an outward symbol, okay? Just like this wedding ring that I'm wearing. It is a symbol of my marriage. It does not make me married, just like... Water baptism does not make you saved any more than me wearing this, this wedding band make me married, okay? It's a symbol. That's all it is. It's an important symbol because for us, it's also an act of obedience because I always say it in our new members class. If, if, you're, if you're born again and, and you received Christ, you repent from your sins, you, you placed your faith in Christ, but you won't undergo water baptism, don't even talk to me. Don't even talk to me about going on missions. I'm not going to listen to you. It's about obedience. Okay? In verse 6, Jesus makes it clear, he makes a clear distinction between the human flesh, experience of birth, and birth by the Spirit. Literally, that which has been begotten by the flesh, that which has been begotten by the Spirit. In essence, human, lives come, human life comes through the flesh and spiritual life comes through the Spirit. 
A careful look at verse 7 is significant in the practical application meaning of spiritual birth or new beginnings. Like our physical birth, we are present, but there's nothing we do to cause it. Jesus is not telling Nicodemus that he needed to make this happen. Okay? Nicodemus cannot make this happen. Jesus is not telling that, telling that to Nicodemus. This verse is not a command. Verse 7 is not a command. It is a statement. It it is not in the imperative mood, which gives a a command. Here's the literal reading of verse 7. Here's the literal reading. Nicodemus, don't be surprised that I'm telling you that it is necessary for you to be born again. It is not imperative. Okay? This is a statement of what must happen to anyone in order to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus has already made it clear that such a birth comes only through the Spirit. Therefore, the new birth is something the Spirit does for us, what He does for people. It is not something people do for themselves. It is not an act of cooperation. You are not cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Any more than the baby in a womb is cooperating. Okay? God acts in the human soul where there was no life, and he begets life. Dr. Richard Loveless, again, wrote that birth is a passive experience and not the effect of action initiated by the one born. Of course, these are two men speaking here. We have no idea, you know, what women go through. So you got to take this with a grain of salt. This work is the effect of the Holy Spirit's moving as the trees are moved by the wind. I, 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 you know, I love the, 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 the quiet moments of the day when I can just look out of my backyard and, and see the trees and the leaves blowing in the wind. I love those moments because it brings me back to this passage. The listener cannot force the wind to blow it by any action, and certainly the trees will not do so. The style of, evan- the style of evangelical Christianity, you know, I picked on the liturgicals. I'm going to pick on the evangelicals now. It's, it's equal opportunity. Evangelical churches constantly push and force people towards conversion in order to get them regenerated, manipulating them with moving music, emotional music, repeated invitations, or a sort of sales routine like snake oil. It's an ugly deformity of Christian practice resulting from bad doctrine and is not biblical. That's something for a Baptist minister to say. It is uncomfortable both for those who feel responsible to do it and for those who are the objects of concern. This kind of pressure is better than hiding the gospel, and it continues to be blessed by genuine conversions through the grace of God, and I say it, it happens. Conversion happens by complete grace that we should move away from it without lessening our efforts to proclaim the gospel in a more gracious way to those who do not believe. That's Richard Loveless. If anyone had the concern and personal charisma to push people into the kingdom, Jesus had it. Jesus had it. 
But we didn't see these sales technique and these high-pressured invitations from Jesus, did we? Isaiah, Isaiah 42.2, listen to this prophecy. Isaiah, the prophet, says of Jesus, He will not cry, he will not lift up his voice, he will not make it heard in the street. Okay, nothing against my brothers and sisters who are preaching out in the streets. I'm not saying anything there. I'm just saying it's the style of Jesus. His whole ministry approach reveals the controlled dignity which did not force people beyond the moving of the Holy Spirit that's detectable in their words and actions so that in bringing them to commitment, even the Son of God waited upon the Holy Spirit to move. John 3, 8 reinforces the truth that the new birth is a supernatural work. You can see the effects of the, the wind, but you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. Well, that's the same way with the Holy Spirit. It's a deliberate play on words because wind and spirit is the same word in the Greek. Pneuma, pneuma. It's the same word. Wind and spirit. Just as we do not know where the wind comes from and only see its effects, so we must recognize that ultimately the new birth is the mystery of God at work in the human soul. We will see the effects of that work because such a person will believe in Jesus. And you don't have this up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Jesus says, in, in, uh, or the, the writer John says in, in uh, verses 14 to 18, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We do not need to condemn people or put on high-pressure sales tactics for people to come to Christianity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the human soul. The new birth itself, regeneration, is God's work alone. It is a very common error to confuse the new birth, which is regeneration, and the human response of faith in Christ, conversion. This is simply a matter of theological, this is not simply a matter of theological precision. As a practical issue, we need to be reminded that we cannot make people become Christians. We cannot describe the steps people should take so they can be born again. We think, we think everything in steps. We love to think in steps. It doesn't work that simply. Much harm has been done even when well-intended by those determined to press on unwilling or unprepared people the need to pray a prayer or say particular words so that they'll become converted Christians. That's witchcraft. We'll talk about the importance of faith and repentance and conversion at another time. That's another sermon. But for now, recognize that John 3 is not about the human role in salvation. 
The new birth is a work of God and is not dependent on our own words or sales, persuasive skills. We feel very inadequate when engaging with people's spiritual destiny. And you know what, folks? The fact of the matter is we are inadequate. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But we are also encouraged because in a way that this is as mysterious as the blowing of the wind. God uses inadequate people like you, like me, every single day as part of the uh, accomplishment of his great work of causing his kingdom to come one life at a time. Just like a midwife, just like a midwife. Uh, you know, in the old days, they had midwives. Helping in the delivery of the baby. We are available to participate in God's work and to be in awe of his power. To give new life to those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. It's obvious that looking uh, at Jesus, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that when he used the language of birth to describe the new life he came to bring, it was intended to provoke images of physical birth. Physical birth. That is certainly how Nicodemus reacted. Jesus was trying to explain that spiritual birth, just like physical birth, this is important. It's fundamentally a process. The delivery of the baby is an important event, but it is to be clearly understood to be the result of something that took place earlier followed by a season of pregnancies. We're talking six to nine months, right? Furthermore, the event of the delivery is not the end of the process, but it's just the beginning of a new chapter in a life begun nine months earlier. We think that, you know, they just walk down the aisle and say a simple prayer. It's not that simple. We evangelicals have placed so much emphasis on dramatic conversions that one moment of saying the, the sinner's prayer that we lose sight of the fact that spiritual birth is a process. Think about how our Christian life is rooted in language such as this. When you accepted Christ as our Savior, or the moment you gave your heart to Christ, there's an assumption that the new birth and conversion are the same thing. And that is simply not the case, according to John 3. I told you I was going to spin, spin that uh, understanding on its head. There is a disconnect between what people have been taught and what they've actually experienced. This also applies to the way much evangelism is taught. People are told that their goal is to briefly present biblical truth whether it's the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion or way of the masters, I don't care. Just use any one of them. You present biblical truth and then you press others to pray the sinner's prayer with little account is made of the need for hearts, hearts and souls to be prepared by the Holy Spirit. I, we, 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 we treat like uh, uh, the dish baby just came out. 
And there wasn't a long period beforehand of preparation. That's the way we look at the born-again experience. So there's a disconnect there. This also applies to the way much, much uh, uh, of what people are taught. This is, this is teaching that does not fit with people's personal experience, okay? Nor does it seem to work when they try to evangelize others. It is absolutely critical that when we think of the new birth as a process rather than an event. Again, Stephen Smallman in his book, What is True Conversion? I, I encourage you to get it. What He makes the point that experientially we encounter God in the reverse order that we usually discuss Him. Listen to this. Our first encounter with God is the Holy Spirit, even though we don't know it at the time. When the Holy Spirit touches you, you're not going to know it. Who leads us to the Son, and through the Son, we come to know God as our Father. Stephen Smallman came up with this birth line diagram. I hope you guys can put that diagram up. It really revolutionized the way that we view the new birth process, okay? The key to the entire birth process is the point of conception, the beginning, okay? Just, just how a, a, a baby is conceived in the womb. Think of it, okay? This is when life begins. Physically, this is a private matter, and it's only known that there's new life growing sometime after it has actually happened. Spiritually, the beginning of a new life is even more mysterious. Jesus used the imagery of the blowing of the wind to describe it. At this point, we step on holy ground because God Almighty, the Lord of all creation, actually comes to a human being and breathes spiritual life into the soul. At first, this new life is totally hidden away, and his only, his, his only role is that we begin to sense that something is different. We just notice something is different. The process of coming to a conscious faith once the work of God has begun is what could be thought of as spiritual pregnancy. Okay? The season of our spiritual life, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, that is what we call the effectual calling. An effectual calling is simply means, it simply means it works. When God calls, we come. At the effectual calling stage, we are convicted of our sin, we understand the good news or the gospel, and our desires change so that we want Christ. Unlike a physical pregnancy, the length of which is fairly fixed, again, like I said, six to nine months, spiritual pregnancy goes on as briefly or as long as God takes to bring us to faith and repentance. It could be six minutes. It could be nine months. It could be nine years. Does that help? He uses the prayers. God uses the prayers of other people, the witness of friends and family, the preaching of the word like you're hearing today, and even suffering. Yes, he uses suffering to bring us to that place of repentance and faith. But once we finally come to a vital faith, we can look back at it and see God's hand at work long, long, long before you even believed. 
Physically, we know that what is conceived grows for about nine months. That's the X, the crossing, then occurs. That's the dotted X on the birth line diagram. Okay, from phase one of life to another phase of life, the baby has been alive for some time now. But now it is time to go public. We often speak of that as the birth of the baby, but we recognize that this is really the end of the first phase of the whole growth process. Again, it's a process. It is not a moment. It is essentially the same pattern with the life of the Christian. Once God has begun the process in your life, there's a time of preparation, essentially that spiritual pregnancy period. And finally, a visible expression of that new life as we actually turn to faith, uh, turn to faith in Christ and turn away from a life of unbelief and disobedience to one of belief and, and obedience. This experience of turning uh, is what usually is thought of as conversion. That's what we think of conversion. The reason the X is drawn as a dotted line is that many, if not most people, cannot specifically identify a point at which they were converted. Even though they know that changes have taken place, it is very important to have a conscious sense of having trusted Christ, but since conversion or the act of trusting Christ is the result of inner work of the Holy Spirit. The actual experience of conversion is not the critical issue. It is the cry of the newborn baby that follows months and months and months of pregnancy. Amen? You can take that, uh, uh, that chart down. Thank you, Brother Clyde. If you'll just allow me to just, for a couple of minutes, share my own testimony and share the, the, the conversion testimony of another Christian, you'll see what I mean. This will drive home the point of this birth line diagram, okay? I was raised in a, a non-Buddhist, uh, a non-Christian family in Vietnam. We were as secular as you can get it, okay? Uh, we, although we were surrounded by Buddhist culture and ancestry, ancestry worship. My father died uh, when I was seven years old in 1972. We emigrated to the U.S. in the mid-70s. And as soon as we arrived in, in uh, the great state of Arkansas, in Fort Smith, Arkansas, my mother just enrolled my younger sibling and I in a parochial school. And I attended religious class and church services on a regular and, and weekly basis as a, youth, as a youth, every single day. I'd sit in religion class and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, every single day for a period of three years, okay? And did you know you can do that every single day and still be lost? That's what I was. I attended religion classes, Mass. It was here that I was first exposed to reading the Gospels and Acts. I didn't know, didn't have a clue of what I was reading. In that parochial classroom, the seeds for my eventual conversion were initially planted. Even though I didn't understand a word, the seeds were already planted in me. Okay? It was not until a friend of mine from the Scouts, Boy Scouts, who came to visit me. It was the junior year of our uh, high school uh, journey. He came to visit me during a summer night um, in 1982. When he came and he shared, after some initial light conversation, he, he asked me, he asked me if I knew where I would go if I were to die that night. 
And, of course, I considered myself at that time as a moral, uh, fairly moral, uh, decent person. You know, all, all the worst I could do was sneak into rated R movies and chew uh, skull, which is chewing tobacco. You guys wouldn't know that. Uh, so I was certain I would go to heaven because of my good, my good actions just outweighed the bad, right? Well, my friend then shared the scriptures that all of my good works were not going to be good enough to get me into heaven because I fell short of the mark. As good as I was, I still fall short of the mark, he said. And that uh, because we all miss the mark, we deserve wrath, we deserve hell. That's what it was created for. It wasn't created for, for human beings. It was created for, for the devil. And, and his demons. So we sinned against the holy God, but God so loved the world that he gave his only uh, begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And for the first time in my life, I, get this, get this. I prayed the sinner's prayer that night. I just went ahead and prayed the sinner's prayer with him after he shared the gospel. But looking back at that journey, I only intellectually turned on the light. The Holy Spirit intellectually turned on the light when I heard the gospel, the good news for the first time. So I willingly assented to the facts of the gospel that Christ died for my sins and he was raised from the dead. And I repeated that sinner's prayers on my knees with my friend to commit my life to Christ while I didn't realize the significance of what I was doing on that night in July 1982, I made a conscious decision to place my trust in Christ, and I immediately learned to pray to God. I joined a local church, First Baptist Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I was baptized, and I was welcomed as a church member. A lot of church members, most church members, go through that experience. Right, I reinforced my initial commitment to Christ by participating in the Evangelism Explosion program in the summer of 1982, the initial year of my new faith. It was through that program that I learned uh, from a spiritual mentor who was Miss Lynette Hoffman how to share my testimony in the gospel presentation. I now see that as a result of my participation in the program, meditating on, practicing, sharing the gospel on a weekly basis, reading books like The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, I finally came to a realization of my own brokenness and the depth of my personal sinfulness. Well, in a in a summer night in 1983, I was attending a special uh, service held at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa where I would go to college. One year, one year after I had made my initial commitment to follow Christ, I walked forward during that altar call in 1983 and repented of my sins and placed my trust in the person of Jesus Christ for his forgiveness. As God would have it, and this is why I know it was a God thing. My assistant pastor at First Baptist Church in Fort Smith, Tom Newton, it was a Southern Baptist church. He's an assistant pastor. He shows up at this charismatic service, standing literally behind me as I was praying this sinner's prayer. Again, the second time. That just doesn't happen, folks. We happened to meet each other down at the altar. There were 5,000 people, and he met me down at the altar. 
I shared with him what I'd just experienced, and he agreed to allow me to make a second profession of faith and also be baptized a second time. Folks, that don't happen in a Baptist church. Not in an SBC church, it doesn't happen. We don't baptize people a second time. You get baptized once here, okay? Looking back at the two supernatural occurrences, I now see that, that, that my initial prayer to commit my life to Christ in the summer of 1982 was more of an effectual calling. It was not conversion. I was lost. Whereas the second prayer in the summer of 1983 was one of true repentance from my personal sins and brokenness and confession of faith towards the saving power of Jesus Christ. That was the point of my conversion to Christianity. Finally, the birth line diagram makes the obvious point that one who is alive grows up. Growth is a slow process with many starts and stops, but the day of delivery is the beginning of a new phase in the overall process. So this birth line diagram also makes an assumption consistent with Scripture that those, those who come to faith in Christ are on a path that inevitably leads to growth of that faith is what we call sanctification, which is a topic for another sermon. So to summarize the whole process of the new birth, when we truly accept Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that God declares us justified at once. And I don't like that phrase just as if we never sin. We did sin, and Christ paid the price. Okay, God as the judge judicially declares the guilt gone upon the basis of the substitutionary work of Christ. It is not that God overlooks the sin. He is holy because he is holy. All sin results in true guilt. But when we receive Christ as our Savior, our sin has been punished in Christ, in history, space, time, upon the cross. And God declares you justified as far as your guilt is concerned. On the cross, Jesus took all all of your punishment, which means there's no punishment left for us to bear, either in this life or, or hereafter, because Christ is divine. His death had infinite value, value enough in substitutionary fashion to cover all of your sins, all of your guilt, of all those who will ever come to him. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is left to be charged to your account. So seeing in this way, this is the biblical way to see it. There are no degrees of justification, okay? You cannot be more or less justified, okay? In this sense, one cannot be more or less Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. You're not partially a Christian. You are or you're not, just as one is born or not born, married or not married. Okay, so one who has received Christ as Savior and thus is declared justified. There's no halfway, no degrees. The guilt is totally gone from the Christian and gone forever. As far as the east is from the west, as high as the skies from the earth. Okay, therefore, for the Christian, justification is past. Then we go into sanctification. That's the other topic. 
Romans 8.28, I love it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called to those who he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I opened up the message with the autobiography of Malcolm X. I'm going to close and just be patient with me. A couple of more minutes. I'm going to close with the conversion story of Thomas Tarrant, a former KKK member. He says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The story of Thomas Tarrant, former member of the KKK, He looks back at his conversion experience. He says, this verse can apply to many situations, but it certainly applied most importantly to the way of salvation. We can think we're all living good Christian lives, all the while we're barreling towards death. And I learned this through hard experience. Thanks to my dear Baptist mother, I grew up going to church regularly. By the age of 13, I knew that hell is a terrible reality. I didn't want to go there when I died. So I also knew that Jesus died for my sins and that by accepting him, I'd go to heaven. Well, after talking with the pastor, I made a profession of faith one Sunday morning. I was baptized that evening. I was now sure I would go to heaven when I died. But nothing could have been further from the truth. And this is the experience of the majority of people sitting in the pews. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, I had passed through the white gates onto the easy road that leads to destruction, which Jesus warns about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven thirteen. It was indeed the way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. But its end is the way of death. Eventually, I came to see that I was motivated by fear. Accepting Jesus had been a matter of head knowledge, intellectual assent. There was no repentance. There was no faith. Unfortunately, it took 10 years to discover that. Hard years filled with much sin and suffering. Okay? For, for me, it took the form of fighting for God and fighting for country. That, the way that seems right to a man, it takes various forms, many of them respectable. But this is the way I took it. At first blush, that sounds admirable, like noble military service. But I was in the midst of the civil rights era of the 1960s. And in my case, fighting for God and country meant embracing far-right extremism with its hatred of blacks, Jews, communists, socialists, and liberals. I adopted the views of the, the Christian identity movement, a violently racist, anti-Semitic cult. This and other racist, anti-Semitic groups are alive and well today and gaining adherence in these troubled times. One old saint wisely observed that the devil is a master fisherman. He baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. He had used the right bait to catch me. The road I was traveling led to increasing hatred for the enemies of America and the enemies of the white race. They had to be stopped at all costs. The end justifies the means. 
One night, an accomplice and I attempted to bomb the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi, but the house was staked out by a police SWAT team. My accomplice was killed. I was shot four times at close range with a shotgun fire. When I got to the hospital, the doctors say it would be a miracle if I lived 45 minutes. But God had mercy on me and miraculously spared my life. If ever there was a time to repent of my sins and turn to Christ, you don't think it, was, it would be then. That would be a pretty good time, wouldn't you think? But I was dead in, in my trespasses and sins. Remember, he had prayed the Christian sinner's prayer back when he was age 8, 13, all right? The man is as lost as anything. It was then that I realized that I was dead in my trespasses, and I didn't think I was, what I was doing was wrong. After all, I was fighting for God. I was fighting for America, like many people think today. I was sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, said to be one of the worst prisons in America at that time. I went there with one thing in mind, to escape and to return to my my hatred activities. It took six months to work out a plan, recruit two other inmates, but we, f we pulled off the successful escape. Two days later, however, the FBI found, it, found us uh, in a wooded area, and one of the inmates was killed in the ensuing fire, gunfire. Had he not relieved me from standing watch 30 minutes earlier than planned, I would have been the one who was killed. I was taken back to uh, the, the prison. This time, I was put in a solitary cell in the maximum security unit. It was the lowest point in my life since any hope of escape was gone. Okay, Basically, rationally speaking, this would have been another right time to repent and turn to Christ. Do you think he did so? Probably not. But I still saw myself as a patriot. I was a patriot fighting for God and country. When someone is blind and dead in their sins, rational thoughts, rational arguments, rational considerations alone cannot bring them to life. It takes something more, something supernatural, like the power of the Holy Spirit. To keep from going crazy, I occupied my time. I read everything. Top priority was catching up on all the racist and anti-Semitic uh, books I, that I hadn't devoured before. I then read a, a book on neo-fascist political theory and cultural analysis, which exposed me to a much more sophisticated, intellectual, respectable approach to the issues of race and culture. Many Western philosophers were referred to, and they were intriguing to me. I read Hegel. I read Spengler's Decline of the West, both of which were challenging for someone with no philosophy background. I read Plato and Aristotle. Okay? I read Marcus Aurelius. I'd been interested in Western civilization, so this seemed like a good place to start a proper study. I had no idea that such a study would take me away from my racist, anti-Semitic, far-right-wing ideology. In retrospect, I see it as the Holy Spirit's pre-evangelistic ambush. 
It liberated my mind and gave me a desire to seek truth, whatever that might take me, and to examine my life as Socrates urged. Since philosophy didn't possess the truth I was seeking, I was drawn, now I realized, by the Holy Spirit to read all of the Gospels where I finally encountered the truth himself, Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 6. Unbeknownst to me, a group of women outside the prison had read about me in the newspaper, and they began praying weekly for two years that God would save and use me for His glory. The leader of this prayer group was the wife of the FBI agent who orchestrated my capture in Meridian. Not long after I started reading the Gospels, my eyes began to open. A divine and supernatural light imparted to the soul, as Jonathan Edwards would put it. My many sins began to flood my mind, and with them conviction, repentance, and tears of confession. One night I knelt on the floor of my prison cell, and I prayed a simple prayer to Jesus, asking him to forgive me, and offer my, I offered my life to him if he wanted it. It felt like a thousand pounds had been lifted from my shoulders. Something changed inside of me, and I have not been the same since. I had left the road of easy religion that was leading me to destruction, and I stepped onto the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Matthew 7, 14. That's what Christian conversion looks like. I awoke the next day to find that I was, I was now spiritually alive and God was real to me. I had an immediate appetite to read the Bible, to pray, to live for God. The more I read the Bible, the more I grew. God gave me love for his people, and that, whom I once hated. And I, uh, he, he helped change me in, in many other ways. Miraculously, I was released from prison in 1976. And after serving, after serving eight years and from 1978 to the present, I have been active in ministry. That is God's grace. Through all the trials and tribulations of life, even the very painful experiences of life, he uses them for our good. What about you? What about your life story today? Have you, experienced, have you experienced a new beginning in this new year? If you have not, then the road that many are on seems to be right, but it leads to death. As C.S. Lewis observed, if you've not chosen the kingdom of God, in the end, in the end, it will make no difference what you have chosen if you've not chosen the kingdom of God. The same grace that's been so abundant in Tom Tarrant's life, that's so abundant in my life, is available today to anyone who truly wants it. Simply embrace the gospel. Simply turn to Christ in repentant faith. Get your 2021 off with the right perspective. Across continents, across time zones, across cultures, the events of 2020 have emphasized humanity's frailty, mortality, and hopelessness. We are lost. We are alone. We are sick, and we are condemned. But at the sound of a baby's heart's cry, the baby's first cry, everything changed. And because of Jesus, we can now be found, we can be beloved, we are healed, and we are saved. Jesus, humanity's Savior, is the first word, and he will also have the last word on COVID and anything else that's going to happen in 2021. His reign and rule have not changed 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever amidst the overwhelming events of this year. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed, Daniel 7, 14. So he reigns, he rules over diseases and viruses and politics and racism and natural disasters. He rules over kings and princesses, presidents and prime ministers, over wars and riots and violence, over galaxies and stars and planets. He calls them each by name. So join us, join us. And reflecting on the events of 2020 through the lens of God's love and sovereignty. And celebrate with us that he came once. And he is coming again. So join me in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for your, for your love and faithfulness to us. Thank you most of all for your grace that came through, uh, through the blood of your son Jesus Christ. Uh, who was born for us, who died for us, and who was raised from the dead for us. And so we reflect on what you've done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. We think back over our, our long lifetimes, our short lifetimes, and we just think of all the great things that you've done for us. We ponder with grace and love, Lord, which you poured out in each instance in our lives, and we give you thanks. We give you praise. We ask that you would give us wholehearted love for Jesus this new year. Give us a desire to be more like Him. Help us to do, give us the power of the Holy Spirit to do whatever is necessary to bring it to tuition and also to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.